Hi, I'm Jez and I'm a communication coach and I thought it would be a really cool idea for the first time ever with my business, even though I've known how to do this stuff for quite a long time, to introduce you to a few people with true talent, people who've got something interesting and good to say about what they do in business. I thought it'd be great for you to hear all about them and where they're at. So this is the My True Talent podcast. You're most welcome and enjoy the show. Jeffrey Fullerton is a veteran entrepreneur, fairly astonishing, as he's still only 22. He started his own business at the age of 12, providing a multitude of businesses in various sectors with a suite of IT services. From there, his abilities and fast-growing experience and nous led to adventures far wide and not forgetting his local neighbourhood, much closer to home in China. Japan and Santa Fe, with significant roles in manufacturing, community development and the entertainment industry. Nowadays, amongst many non-profit making activities, he heads up Liquid Zoo, LZ, a hybrid technology entertainment studio focused on developing the framework for next-gen multi-generational experiences. And now, Jeffrey can count luminaries from Apple, Netflix, MTV, SAG and Paramount as team members to help him and the business produce countless immersive shows, films and experiences. We had not one, but two fascinating conversations about the ever-expanding role of tech in all aspects of life and business, the music business, where it's at and where it's going, and his role in the entertainment business moving forward, and a lot more mind-altering stuff besides. But first, and quite simply, I asked Jeffrey about his plans for world domination. <laughs> um, I mean, you're, you're assuming that uh, there's a world still to dominate, and we're not, uh, you know, all conquered by our new Russian overlords. But yeah, I um, don't think they've got quite the weight for that to be honest. Yeah, probably not. Ra- but rather destroy us than do that because they haven't <laughs> got the they haven't got the oomph. Uh, in fact, if you looked at, did you see that bit where? Um, <laughs> Putin was giving his co- his cohort a ticking off. He gave his a chief of spies a ticking off, uh, just to make the point to Russian television and presumably to the world that he was a sarcastic bugger. It was really bizarre. Um, he was going, so "Please speak more. Cl- please speak more, cl- more clearly." <laughs> so, like, Sergey, it was like some sort of weird advert. Sergey, you know, like a spoof. Please speak more clearly. <laughs> it's not... oh, so wild. Um, Quite bizarre. Quite bizarre. Yeah, what am I up to? Um, you know, I, I, you know, I live in a little bit of a, a unique section of the world where I'm somewhat in the kind of classic entertainment industry, film, television, um, episodic music, but really interested in using those productions as uh, vessels and vectors for experimenting with some of the really incredible tech that's come out of the past uh, 15 years. And using this tech that's really been used for convenience towards, uh, you know, like we said, bringing people together and and building communities and and building um, connections between individuals. And in some cases, on kind of the extreme version of that, forcing individuals to work together to be able to unlock additional pieces of content. Um, and so I'm living a little bit in two worlds where I have to 
very much think about how to translate that messaging and translate that narrative to um, people who don't really like change and people who have their very fixed and set ways, but also simultaneously um, thinking about distributed systems and, you know, how we can be building these projects with um, those systems in mind and to be able to feed into those sort of systems in the future. And it's a really interesting world because you're, you're, there's really not a middle ground. It's either like far facing, you know, web six type stuff or, um, you know, legacy entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is interesting because I had a little, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to disclose anything, but I had a little look at what you're up to and it seems like, you know, there's, I mean, look great. Um, and the trail trail that I saw in particular looked really good. Um, I'm interested to see, because I've, I've got a, I, I'm, I'm in a, in a bit of a quandary with my use of YouTube at the moment, because despite the fact that I've been making various creative things for the last, well, 15, 16 years, I never really used YouTube for any purpose, otherwise just as a repository for videos. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm, I met a guy yesterday who's in charge of YouTube um, at Warner, well, in charge of it, as in he consults uh, on YouTube for Warner Media in in Europe and and Africa and and what strikes me is that and I'm sure you're on the you know you've got your finger very much on the pulse here but or at least exploring very much so there seems to be a huge amount of um different ways to tell a story now mm -hmm. and it's utterly compelling but my quandary is that I often have no idea where to start. There's a lot of ideas, but I have no idea where to start. And I guess, I don't know, from your point of view, what's the biggest challenge, do you think? Is it, the, is it just generally the unknown? Or is it that you've tried a few things that they haven't quite worked? Or is it that you're, you're too far ahead for technology to keep up? What, what what do you think if you have a challenge is, is your kind of major challenge with this stuff i think there's a really a few ways to answer that question um the challenge being on the studio front is that you have a um an industry that has gone through mass consolidation there has been um you know various kind of sub-production companies and into you know really a handful of true behemoths and Within that, there's been a culture adopted um, that isn't really reflective of that of technology. It's one of like, you know, respect what's been done, kind of go up the ladder. It's, you know, sort of your career man-esque culture. And you have somewhat of a fear of doing something different. And on the flip side of that, it, it kind of makes sense. Like the production budgets that most films and most shows are interacting with these days are so massive that you you've really lost to that middle market experimental approach um i i have many friends who come from the terrence malick family and and terrence malick is obviously an amazing director and really innovative and and by today's standards and, and is an art film director but you know terrence in many ways um his films are 
for the benefit and for the growth of cinema, not necessarily for um, mass consumerism. But when you're working with the budgets of the likes of Marvel and uh, these franchise IPs, it's really hard to take risks because those, those risks can literally bankrupt the company. Uh, so ultimately, I think part of it comes down to fear on the studio's behalf of being able to adopt to those new technologies. And the second, I think, kind of comes down to a, uh, a fear of tech. I mean, it's that's so apparent just looking at the of the Olympics these past few weeks and NBC, who for many weeks leading up to it and, and, and even after have been copyright striking anything that they could possibly strike of any meme or remix or, or videos that were being shared all the way up to copyright striking one of their own employees who had a larger Twitter following than the Olympics itself. And it's really, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, um, uh, the, uh, I think Leslie Jones. Yeah. It was Leslie Jones with the copyright stroke from struck from, from NBC, uh, who is one of the Saturday Night Live hosts. And, um, I think what they really miss is that, like this world of passive viewing and is not really in existence anymore. Even when someone is passively viewing, they're also on their phone and they're also uh, texting friends and they're also looking through Twitter threads. And, and you have in successful IP today, these societal and cultural moments. And with Marvel and with these blockbuster IPs or you know, even Pixar films, you have those cultural moments because they're multi-generational and you have families and you have um, the massive marketing push behind those IPs pushing people into watching it. And even if you're not necessarily familiar with that exact film, you have some resonance and you have some awareness of the Marvel story universe. And so you're able to feel in the know and you're able to feel part of something. You're able to have um, this sort of water cooler dog run moment where you're part of that community. But when you get to unknown IPs, um, those are a lot harder to develop and, and have historically just been purchased by the major studios. You have the likes of you know, Star Wars to Lord of the Rings, these things that have cultural resonance uh, being acquired. And I think what they, they miss is that specifically today, it's all the more vital to provide audiences with the ability to remix and to match and to uh, interact with content on whatever platforms are most interesting and engaging to them and also most adapt to that medium and to the story that you're trying to convey. And out of that, you generate virality and memes and, and ultimately have this sense of cultural presence that I think is really missed in most productions. Um, so that's one answer to that question. Yeah, yeah. And I be very interested to explore the the types of well not so much types of technology but the trends for certain behavior i guess and perhaps the types of technology that that would go with that um go along with that so mm -hmm. this idea of ownership which clearly has been well i guess user generated content user interaction um, and 
you know, going way back to Napster, I suppose, we and before, but essentially in the last 25 years, because of what's happened uh, with the online revolution, we have completely different, well, different generations, let's just say, for want of better, a better argument, perhaps, have different views on ownership. And in practice, it, it works differently. Hence why you've got a kind of rather loose concept, I think, at any rate, of fair use on YouTube. And, you know, but clearly it hasn't been developed because it's, as ever, quite reactionary. People mm -hmm. don't quite know how to deal with it still yet. First of all, what do you think, because I'm afraid this is going to be another slightly complex question, but first of all, what do you think are the ramifications? I mean, or at least how can you see with your crystal ball, as it were, how this will change in 10 years in your area and what type of technology can you see helping that so in other words helping to to revolutionize um use and ownership of media i really wish i had a crystal ball um <laughs> uh, if, you're, if you're able to tell me where my crystal ball is i would give you a very large amount of money for uh those future predictions, but um, there's a, an advisor of mine who was uh, on the board of Netflix and, and former head of SAG and MPAA and really got to see through some of the early and late stage digital piracy stuff through his different uh, roles. And there's like a little bit of a running joke in, uh, amongst my friends and, and parts of the interactive and immersive entertainment industry that the uh, porn industry is 10 years ahead of us and the music industry is two years ahead of us. And if you look at the likes of Napster, that was kind of true, right? Like audio files were a lot smaller they were a lot easier to work with. And sure. uh, because of that, they were pirated in a lot earlier than uh, motion pictures or, you know, episodic. So um, I think that there's a lot of people who are looking through this period of time in like kind of an alarmist perspective. And I, I, I point out the Olympics and NBC example specifically to that, where their reaction is the lockdown, right? Like copyright strike, pull it, invest in tools that allow you to automate those, those strikes and automate that um, DMCA process. But I think that that is really the, the wrong approach. Ultimately, you have a consumer market catch up with the likes of, um, in the case of motion pictures and, and music, Spotify, streaming services, right? And, and Netflix for, for film and television. And you also have the, the cultural understanding change. And, and from that comes an opportunity to reinvent your revenue models and to reevaluate your revenue models. But that's ultimately something that is very risky and is very daunting to them. And when you have an environment that's not particularly apt to innovation, that's a, a compelling ask to get them to, to look at how those revenue models could adapt. Um, the second answer to that question would be, you have some emergence of that, I think in, in the likes of Web3 and um, crypto and, and you know fractional ownerships and, I'm not a huge Web3 fan. Um, I follow it really closely. I think that there's some really underlying interesting pieces of technology that 
when deployed in more robust ways could be very beneficial and very innovative to the world. But I think that a lot of what we're seeing in that space is really just novelty or really just cash grabs. Um, our mining of fandoms and uh, is like the epitome of a bubble. However, sure. when you look at some of those technologies and, and having things on chain and the basis of what NFTs are, that starts to get interesting where you actually begin to have uh, what the entertainment industry refers to as a chain of title. Um, you start to have the moment an asset or a story is created or issued, um, a registered entity for that. And studios spend massive amounts of money being able to track that and ensure that they have adequate chain of title on um, their IP. And, and uh, kind of pausing on that thought, you have on the flip side, a huge loss of trust and in, in, in loss of ownership that's going to co inevitably come with machine learning and deep fakes and, and generative content, where if you want to be able to create a Star Wars game in 10 years from now, um, in, through various tools and techniques, that game could probably be fairly generated around that IP and generated for you. And it's a wholly new product. Um, so like, what is the copyright around that? If you take thousands of hours of National Geographic footage of of cheetahs running and tell a computer to learn the muscle and bone structure and how a cheetah runs. Um, and it watches and observes that and then ultimately creates its own video of a cheetah running. Despite the fact that you derived that from thousands of hours of that footage, that's a wholly new product and not subject to our current copyright. And I think that's where you start to see some interesting implications for things like blockchain and NFT and, and getting into fractional ownerships and new revenue models where um, you can have a sort of parent chain where these assets are being um, created and you have packs and uh, asset packs, you have um, machine learning models, you have various pieces of a story world of, of an IP that are given out to audiences to work with and to remix and to collaborate with and that ultimately stay on that parent chain so everyone can see and view that parent chain. Um, and know that that is authentic to the original view of that story and of that IP to um, that creator, but then have the ability to have secondary and subchains with their various remixes and, and creations um, that can be deployed into the world and that they potentially could receive revenue shares on or the studios could um, receive revenue shares on. Um, and so I think that that provides a system for decentralization of IP creation and community remixes, while also allowing these legacy entities to have upside and to return on investment in their massive um, expenditures for that IP. And so, in my opinion, that's just like an inevitable thing to come. And, and we see it a little bit right now with the massive loss that every IP holder has in counterfeit merchandise in that it's so easy to go take a logo or take an asset and into Photoshop or recreate it and throw it on a t-shirt or a mug or even into a you know video game and push that out into the world that uh, your, your even your most loyal consumers can't tell the difference and are frequently 
uh, bamboozled by a product that may be inferior or, or at the bare minimum is just a misuse of copyright and a misuse of marks. So I think the approach needs to be instead of trying to lock down those worlds, how can we embrace that world and give transparency and authenticity to our fandom and to our most loyal fans while being able to um, you know, have the unit economics that allows us to continue to create these amazing story worlds. Uh, that's fascinating. And, and um, it's interesting, a very interesting application of something that already exists. And, uh, you know, I've been personally thinking about, you know, what do you do with NFTs and what, you know, and the concept of fractional ownership and, you know, how tagging would change and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and the whole, uh, the 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 way that meta is used, you know, mm -hmm. I mean that in the loosest sort of way, um, and and kind of if you like, almost diversified completely, depending on what people are doing with that. I can see it being an extraordinary, complex, but but amazing universe of um, commerce just on its own, and and amazingly beneficial for the orig originator but also incredibly um, beneficial for those people who decide to take the challenge of, um, as they already are, of course, of um, remixing, of creating something entirely new in, a, in different media. Um, and as media changes and as people's experiences change, um, almost on a daily basis, um, I can see that being particularly useful. From your point of view, and let's say you're you're working on something at the moment. Not that you necessarily already you know um, applied it, but you may have thought about this. Um, can you see something that you're working on currently going down that sort of route? I mean, you know, as as a strategic point of view. Uh, yeah, from your strategic point of view. There's a this wonderful graph from Andreessen Horowitz titled "Meet Me in the Metaverse," and essentially there's there's four quadrants to it, um, and it looks at the sort of four phases of content creation that will go into um, the metaverse. And I think a lot of people like to think of the metaverse as this like ready player one-esque or free guy-esque world. Um, and I don't, I don't really share that same view. I think the metaverse is um, much more inclined towards uh, user personalization than it is necessarily towards the digital world. And I think it's much more inclined towards bringing the digital world and the physical world closer together than it is purely a digital space. Um, but within that, you have your first tier being professionally created content, your second tier being user generated content, your third tier being AI assisted user generated content, and your fourth tier being fully, uh, fully AI, you know, created content. Um, and I think that there's an interesting example of that right now in Minecraft, right? Minecraft is the sort of easiest world building first introduction for many kids into what the like quote unquote metaverse could look like, this hyper digital world where you can um, go on adventures and, and the same way that you and I probably rode our bikes around our neighborhoods with our friends. And that's really like, it's, it's no different, right? You are exploring, you're having a sense of autonomy and a, and a sense of um, individualism for many ways the first time away from your parents with your friends and, 
in a world where you can begin to develop your own personality and your own character traits. But you have a world, um, a seed that has been fully AI created. And that is the mountains and the lakes and all of these different things that have, have been you know, created by the AI. The second tier to that within the world of Minecraft are um, when you start to get into kind of the PC version and, and the computer versions are the AI assisted tools where it's like if you want to build a wall, you tell the computer to build a wall here. And instead of spending days laying those, those blocks and laying those bricks, it'll begin to build that wall. Um, the next tier to that are, are things that are physically built, right? It, it blends into the build the wall, but it also may be that you just build a small house or you dig a mine or whatever that creation may be with you and your friends and your community um, at whatever scale from a little hut to throw your bed in, in the game all the way up to a massive like full scale recreation of Paris. Um, and that brings us into that first tier, which is a professionally created, um, hyper-polished environment. And you have people who have made their entire lives and their entire livelihoods off of creating these epic, massive worlds within the game that they are then selling or streaming to other players to go and explore and to build and to remix. And maybe they plant bombs in a corner or maybe they build the Eiffel Tower. It's, it's however they seek to explore and engage in that world. Um, and I think that the, those four tiers are really interesting. Um, I'm really fascinated by what AI-assisted user-generated content looks like. I think that that is kind of, um, for me, where my likely sweet spot in the world will lay and that how do you have um, experiences that can move between being a passive uh, viewing experience uh, all the way to an active, interactive, engaging experience. And I think really the way to do that is through uh, machine learning and an algorithmic assistance towards a user's engagement in that story world. And um, I'm trying to think of, of how much I can say. There's one project in specific that we have that is uh, ultimately centered around an episodic. It has a highly polished, major budget, um, professionally created, beautiful show. And um, out of that, there's then sort of, and using the Minecraft word, um, these seeds. There's a framework that allows the audiences to interact and engage in that um, on their own manner. And then ultimately, um, receive personalized experiences within that story world based off of the content they create and based on the interactions that they provide. And um, hopefully, in, in the case of this project specifically, explore that world and to develop an authentic connection to that world. Um, this project specifically is music-based. It's, it's based around uh, kind of a legacy musician and uh, with his estate, and we really didn't want to slam a biopic down people's throats. We wanted younger audiences to explore and to meet and to understand the ethos and the underlying philosophies of that creator on their own. And we felt that the way to do that was by creating this framework for them to explore that world um, natively. And, and that is something that is rudimentary right now with some machine learning and, and AI tools, but ultimately will be hopefully much more advanced and much more compelling in the future. Because it's interesting that, you, that you're talking about an artist and um, 
uh, and I'm not going to give too much away either. But <laughs> this isn't this is an artist I'm very familiar with, and you were not. Or at you least were. I, I think it's to say I am. Uh, if it's the same one, um, as in he's more. Put it this way: I think. Well, he he's he's a, he's a, he's well known. The point is, what's interesting about an artist is that their personality. It's not just the fact that they are either a singer or a guitarist or whatever, or whatever. They've got a personality. They also create. It's not just that. Let's say they play an instrument, and they're well known for that. But they also create art. Yeah. And, and, and they've got a compelling personality. So you've got the opportunity to remix in many facets dimensions yeah um in that sort of situation um where it may be that people are interested in you know the poetic side of a character you know that that the words in other words um and as well as the music and you know if there's a band involved or something like that you know we can get to learn about the gang you know not just from a creative artistic point of view but also from a cultural point of view yeah. and if let's say that these characters are from some way back so we're talking about something that um you know if it was a novel it would be historical fiction then you've got that sort of exploration as well so you're kind of going you're not just uh, talking about something that's contemporary you're actually time traveling as well the cultural so, context it, it absolutely yeah. and and the different dimensions of the cult, of the cultural context you know the fact that as i say time time itself and the fascination with time and nostalgia and that kind of stuff um and this is the sort of thing that you know i'm particularly interested in with something that i've written which is effectively historical fiction but recent is history and it's semi because i'm that old it's semi-autobiographical so what's interesting there is what could you write almost as a set of meta um, guidance for an audience, at least to get some sort of interesting dialogue going, or for one of a better expression, sort of a, a web of dialogue yeah. going. Um, and that on its own is compelling. But then when you add things like A, because for me, it's like, get try and work the conversation in amongst human humans, just just as is and then add maybe um to that things like ai so that all the time as well as people sharing what they know you've got something going on in the background where where effectively all the time that intelligence is being monitored um built on uh, and um increased so the intelligence is sort of you know changing in the background through ai and machine learning I think it's fascinating. I mean, I think it's absolutely. I mean, it's 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 a mind thing as well. But it's it's absolutely fascinating because storytelling is. I think, I uh, frankly, I mean, I'm a bit I'm a bit romantic about this sort of stuff. Um, I think Tim Berners Lee uh, created something extraordinary, which was, and it was his vision, which was I'm creating a place where people share. And that is in itself, in a commercialized capitalist society, a completely different ball game. Particularly when he said, "Well, and I, by the way, what I've created, I'm not patenting or anything." So it's like, and and the thing is that, of course, the first reaction to that 
is a kind of Andreessen model where people go, oh, yeah, money. Great. So this browser, yeah. How do we make money out of it? Oh, let's make yeah. money out of it. Let, let's make this one-way traffic. And then, of course, because of what, well, not because of, but as part of the transition, in, I think, in the early noughties when things went a bit wrong, about 2000, 2001, you get this maybe through legacy software. I never quite know how it came about, but I suspect there was certainly a, a, a bit of software hanging around. The people then turned into forums and then mm -hmm. um, they thought, well, we've got forums, so why don't we think about, you know, um, a kind of frat pack thing where we get people to share their experiences, yeah, because we've got the technology to do that, so why don't we do that? And they go back to this Tim Berners-Lee thing where you're actually shared thing, except, of course, it's still one way in terms of the mechanism, but it uses that idea, which is you're now sharing stuff. And that sharing thing has completely ballooned. And so now with your third and fourth generation of whatever whatever generation we're on now, you've got this um, extraordinary, and the technology, of course, the technology itself, which has come on in leaps and bounds. So you've got these layers and, and a web upon a web and all that kind of stuff. And art artistically, technologically, um, philosophically, psychologically, you know, in every aspect, you've got uh, just taking storytelling, which is what we're talking about here. It's it used to be interesting, then it became mildly fascinating. And now I think it's utterly compelling. Mm -hmm. And I think it, you know, it is going to attract a lot of, you know, people are thinking, right, I have money. Where do I put it? Um, and then a whole network of people saying that. Because I honestly think we've only just, I mean, really, this is only the the tip of something. Um, and uh, but but from your point of view, you know, if you were to so you're, you know, clearly you're committed to this. What you are doing at the moment in terms of um, whatever project you happen to be on, but let's say it's something which is a story about something from the past, but you're turning it into something that is relevant now in a completely different universe, cultural universe. Um, how do you think that could develop, not just from that project point of view, but from your from what you're doing in, I don't know, 10 years time, you know, something like that. I know it's a bit simplified, yeah. but let's say you were really were to kind of dig deep and think, well, okay, just in terms of aspiration maybe to start with, where do you want it to go? That's a really wonderful question. Um, and I want to touch on a couple things kind of going into that answer um, that you mentioned. And the first is that, right, in, in the kind of web one era coming into uh, the early days of web two, where you do have these blogs and these forums and um, these niche for any corner of the world that you could possibly be in, um, you had an issue of uh, finances and, and ownership there, right? You had essentially people who were so passionate that they were willing to host a server in their room or in their you know, attic for the kayaking community. And they would engage sure. in that community. And coming out of that, and you had the aggregates, you had the bundling. And I think that that's like somewhat of a natural process. Things come together, they bundle, they optimize, they get split apart, they come back together. Um, I think, you know, you, you see that in U.S. antitrust even, right? That like the development of a monopoly is relatively 
inevitable. It's just a matter of when do you have um, a regulatory entity either break that up or implement utility controls. And a monopoly is not inherently bad, uh, just like algorithms aren't inherently bad. It's They're bad when they're misused and they're bad when they are used um, maliciously and um, maybe even recklessly. Uh, so I think what we have the moment that we're in right now has been a misuse of algorithmic content and, and algorithmic targeting where it has been used to push you towards uh, consumption. It's been used towards, um, you know, convincing you to purchase various items. But at the end of the day, like uh, I can say with certainty that we all have probably bought something that we really enjoy that has been targeted to us. Um, and so whether that's your new kitchen mixer or your you know, plant-based uh, like ice cream machine, it can be whatever is most interesting to you. Um, and, and the mechanism for delivering those things that are kind of more obscure to you. And I think where we have really deviated in the world of algorithms is a lack of transparency, a uh, lack of understanding of how your data is being used. And in the world of story, I think you have a lot of legacy entertainment partners who uh, have really misunderstood data and have really misunderstood the value of data and misunderstood how to use it. And, and ultimately that comes down to a variety of factors in terms of how to organize it and how to use it. And, and you essentially have a, a marketing and data analytics team and you have creative teams. And there's very little crossover between the two. The closest you get are your development teams who may pull some analytics and pull some audience stats to be able to make a decision about whether or not they're going to green light a, sh a show or a film or not. Um, and you know where they may run the campaigns for the greatest maximum uh, return on investment. But um, what I am really interested in is how, and, and it comes a little bit into the Web3 world a bit, but how do you give audiences control and input and autonomy over how their data is used and how do you um, have that be used in a transparent way and ultimately used in a manner that increases and improves the experience for them. If you are going to Disneyland with your children and their favorite character is Mickey Mouse and it's their 15th birthday or 12th birthday or whatever it may be, or maybe they went to their 12th and their 15th, right? And when you arrive at the park, Mickey comes up to them and and wishes them a happy 15th birthday. And it's been so long since I, I saw you last, you know, how old are you? It's been three years, right? All of those sort of personal um, impactful moments can be really special and can be really cool. Or it may be that you wanna solve a really intricate puzzle and you wanna be able to move your, your progress and your um, preferences between games or between platforms and, and have all of those feedback together. All of those things enable really cool storytelling mechanisms and can be very special. The problem is we've used that data and used that information in kind of a, a rudimentary um, way. And what's interesting to me is that within the examples I just gave, your monetization models aren't necessarily targeted ads and increased consumption. There is an existing emphasis and an existing cultural understanding of paying for experiences and paying for content. Um, you know, the churn rate for Netflix is, is practically nil. Netflix has become uh, stable in most U.S. households and most British households. And 
uh, even as they've raised their prices, they've, they've had pretty minimal drop-offs. And so there is a understanding that for that engagement and for that uh, diversion of your attention, you have to pay a fee for that. Um, and that I think is a fundamentally different aspect that your legacy tech companies right now haven't really fully embraced. And you have Google experimenting a little bit with ad-free YouTube, where they'll allow you to, you know, go through that process, but they're still mining that data and using it for targeted ads elsewhere. So, you know, take that somewhat with a grain of salt. But um, I think ultimately what we are really excited about and what we're really interested in at Liquid Zoo is being able to take the information and take the the context that comes from story and provide both creators and what we refer to as um, authoring tools, the ability to um, make better stories that are data informed and that maybe have different uh, branching narratives for different audiences and different demographics, but also being able to provide audiences the tools and techniques and structures that allows them to go and remake that content and explore that content and explore those worlds that may be most beneficial and compelling to them. And it's kind of my hope and my theory that through that decentralization and that diversification of content, you will come back to having these cultural moments. You will have a sort of um, singular resonance where people can collaborate and laugh and cry and and scream all at the same time and, and feel collectively together and, and have a word that I use probably way too much, this sense of presence. Um, and so beyond all of the really cool tools and stories and content we're telling, my real hope is to be able to deliver um, a, that sense of communal presence to um, hopefully our audiences and, and you know uh, audiences around the world. It, it is it is fascinating, and as you were talking, well, it's more than that. Um, as you were talking, I was thinking of the you know as I tend to the possibilities of various things. Certainly, it would appear to me that um, it's not so much that the possibilities are endless; it's the nature of things changing. So, for example, you know the the whole monetization actually revolving around something much more deep set as an experience that doesn't necessarily sit in a particularly defined genre or space yeah. of of entertainment so you know it and and you you're thinking about the experience and i think one of the interesting things about i mean one of the things that put me off about um vr in particular was those bloody headsets now that's because that's because um, in order to achieve something, you have to go through a rather artificial you know, mm -hmm. thing to get there. What I, what I find very compelling about the, 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 where we're going, I think, is that the experience that you have will f start to feel like the experience you might have, let's say, going on holiday. So you pay to go on holiday, yeah? 
so you could pay to have an experience that feels like going on holiday so it's not but it's actually something that you may be just you may just be wandering down the street or you may be sitting in your front room or wherever you are but you're actually experiencing something something that feels like something completely different that in time gone by you would have paid to either travel quite a long way or maybe you'd have gone to a gig or you'd have had something to eat what in a particular place or just a sensation yeah. you know and i and i think i think because of it's not just it, it's a it's a combination of technology and culture um because of those shifts and they'll continue to shift um monetization and going back to what we were talking about about ownership becomes a completely different proposition so that you and I'm, i know when you know when web started um there's a huge amount of people think well okay so this bloke left this piece of software in the middle of nowhere so people could play with it yeah well he didn't charge anything for it okay so at that point people thinking fuck if we're going to spend time on this we better think a way of commercializing it quick at least that's what it feels like because some of the ideas were very very simple you know and then it changed again so that for example yeah there was a reaction to napster so someone comes up with a model that gets you know that obviates the need and it and it happened again so you get spotify and then you get netflix netflix fascinating because netflix was basically video on demand sort of mm -hmm. you know crap video on demand and then they went okay no actually this is about um great new catalog. stories but it was back catalogs and then it became about new content new stuff the first time i saw netflix was um uh oh flip what's that political thing called oh, how's God. the card yeah it's the very first yeah. thing i saw on netflix because they were doing a big push for it in the uk and they said this is new content it's new and because yeah. in the uk has cards already been made we were like okay what well, this is fascinating and because it was big uh, the brit the brit i don't know if you saw the brit house of cards which is early 90s thing yeah uh, actually seen some of it it's very quaint i mean you know it's <laughs> i mean really, it's anything's old-fashioned that is but it's kind of got a certain amount of charm it's beautifully performed but um and great characterization but it's definitely of a different era you look at house of cards um us phenomenal in terms of the the the, the quality of the production and this was suddenly changed everything for a lot of people yep. and um and the fact that you you didn't have to wait <laughs> to see stuff you know all that kind of stuff that it changed so many things and i think they were prepared to go there and they did it and took over the world for a few years and all that in terms of content and it's still very dominant um netflix and of course you've got amazon and other players kind of involved in that kind of stuff but they changed they changed a lot and i think that that there's something else waiting around the corner that's that's significant um that because there seem to be a lot of similar technologies or at least connecting technologies whether it's ar ar or vr or or it could be you know as we were talking about something blockchainy mm -hmm. ai you know combine it and you get something completely different again uh, and exactly the same as we were talking about, and 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 the whole concept of ownership completely and utterly changes, changes entirely. And and, um, and of consumption, right? Like 
and of consumption completely. Breaking Bad is, is such a fascinating series because it started as a network television show and it finished as, you know, a Netflix series. And so you get to see the flip that happens from a network show, um, you know, to a, a streamer kind of bulk binge broadcast. And it, it's a, I think will go down as one of the most interesting kind of monumental shows of our generation, given that shift. Oh, absolutely. And particularly when you consider what it was about, because mm -hmm. uh, it, it just, it, it's quite, I mean, and it's, and it obviously it triggered a huge, I mean, oh, clearly there have been shows, you know, shows sort of a bit like that before, but it triggered a whole load of stuff, um, which was all about, I mean, okay, so Weeds was cute, but you know, you kind of get all, and, you know, and the latest one being Ozark, I suppose, but you've got, you get all this kind of stuff coming through, which is, you know, utterly sort of nihilistic sort of um, hardcore stuff that's yeah. incredibly popular that the whole family watches. You kind of think yeah. this is it. And, you know, you and, and it changes it changes the way that people think about consumption and particularly have, from the point of all sorts of things. Yeah, I want to come back to a couple of things you mentioned there, but you touched on a topic that's a, a little bit of a soft spot for me, and it's that we um, my theory on it is that you have we're in a like kind of peak uh, like misery porn right now. You have like Mayor of East Town, um, you know, you have something start of it kind of with Breaking Bad, but you have just this like dark and awful and just like tragic show. Um, yeah, yeah, and and, and it's. And it's like almost an exercise in, in masochism to watch these the mm. shows. Like, um, I, I've been trying to get through Euphoria and I'm having such a hard time. And it's not because I don't think it's a good show. It's just like so, so dark and so sad. And watching these, you know, children who are, are struggling with their, their ungrowth and you just want to like reach out and, and shake them. And so, um, I think what we we had in many ways was, and, and I somewhat blame Netflix for this, and perhaps uh, Reed Hastings will come out and yell at me and tell me that that wasn't at all the case. But <laughs> I think what you, you had was um, the closest equivalent to Netflix at launch was HBO. And what was HBO mm -hmm. making? It was making like dark serial killer, non-network, non-ad friendly content. And... Mm -hmm. So what they went for was somewhat mirroring HBO and they made um, uh, shows like uh, House of Cards into um, uh, and, and got, you know, very successful with that. And um, what you started to have was kind of like the race to the bottom of misery. And it's, there's really only like a few emotions, right, in, in terms of film and television. People laugh, cry or scream. Yeah. And uh that kind of cry mentality that we we adopted um just kept coming leveled up it's like oh netflix is succeeding with the dark content that they're making uh they won awards let's make that we need more dark content and then it's hbo yeah. and, then it's, it's, yeah, and so you end up having this like progressive moment and that's why i think like a show in the vein of ted lasso which was just so good spirited and was so sweet and was, and it was just good natured right uh, had the resonance that it did in many ways because it was this break from this like 
gore and misery and serial killers and apocalyptic futures um, that we have been kind of so pushed upon. And I, and I think that's like somewhat a result of like the moment and, and the societal vibe, but um, it comes down to like, you know, does art shape culture or does culture shape art? And uh, I, I had a, a conversation with my producing partner a couple of months ago where we were looking at a project that we knew would be wildly successful. It was great IP. And, and ultimately I, I found myself going to bed every single night thinking about that story world. And I, I realized at that time, like, I don't actually want to be immersed in this. Like, I don't want this yeah. world. And I think this mm -hmm. is like, and, and it's gone on. It's been greenlit. There's another studio who's, who's making that project. And they're going, they've attached some really cool people. And I'm, I'm excited to watch it. But for me, as like a borderline creative and creator, um, I realized at that time, I don't want to be in that darkness. And I don't want to be in that world. And I think audiences will come to a similar realization in the coming years as well. They want things that are maybe a little bit less masochistic. Yeah, and also a bit more involved, a bit more, a bit more, dare I say, it, complex. Yeah, you know, your 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 life ain't. I think I'm reflective of the drama should reflect life as much as possible. I think what happened, what's been happening, of course, is that, and people talk about diversification and they talk about you know things splitting and then coming back again and all that kind of stuff, particularly with media. I mean, you know, the fact that you've got squillions of, well, you had squillions of channels and now, of course, you know, people tend to watch the same and all the rest of it. it, yep. it it's this kind of normalisation of stuff or whatever you want to call it. But I think what I think is very interesting is that maybe like music in a way, because music is very, very mixed now, I think, in terms of the way people consume music. Um, and I think that will change as well. Uh it ain't necessarily so, and you know, people don't. In my day, you picked your genre and you stuck with it. You know, you really did because you had, you know, you had your gang that followed, you know, I don't know, goth, or you, you, mm -hmm. you know, they followed. In our, in our country, it was new romantic, or it was kind of um, horrible soft metal, or whatever it was, or thrash metal. But you, 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 you were a massive fan of that genre, and you invested your time in it, and you looked like it, and all the rest of it. Now it's not. I mean, for and for some years, it's not. A lot of young, particularly Gen Z. Oh, you talk to my daughter, she said, I don't have any music taste, which is rubbish, of course. Yeah. She listens to music all the time, but she doesn't differentiate. But it's that's, just... That is a, kind of in itself an issue, though, right? What the difference is, and, and, and I, you know, fall in, in likely the same generation as your daughter, right? You have this commodification of music where um, music has become merely a... a stimulant for the mind, very, you know, no different than uh, drugs and alcohol, right? It's, it is this way to take up time. It is this way to stimulate thought, to stimulate and, and to, you know, keep yourself distracted. And what you don't necessarily, and this is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a mm. massive change is that you have um, this kind of loss of uh, cultural understanding, this loss of fandom, this loss of nichification and almost into like a homogenous uh, blob and, and where everyone is listening to this, you know, whatever the algorithms are delivering to them. And uh, that could be a dangerous thing, right? If the algorithms are, are telling you what your tastes are and what your, your love of, of music is, 
um, and you're not seeking out the uh, context and the understanding of what those acts and what that represents and what that, that means to you, and you're not thinking about those things, I mean, think about how much of your own personality you've developed from a fascinating that thing. Fandom. It's actually, do you know what? From my point of view, so I don't think I would have been as interested in, in a deep sense, in some of the artists that I'm interested in now, if it hadn't have been for technology. So I think it could flip the other way, and maybe this yeah. is generational, but I don't know. It may not be. It depends on. It depends on how much passion you have for music like for example and yes i've seen you know i happen to be a bit geeky when it comes to music but um what i'm finding more is more and more is that i'm actually listening to the to the core content the, the original content more so by referencing it when you from say original view, do you mean that like classic? so let's say mean? yeah so let's say um i quite like this guy uh, uh the jazzer um, from the past called Bill Evans, who's very famous, but, um, and his story, I mean, again, you could do the similar sort of thing you're doing with your, your <laughs> artists as you could with Bill, Bill Evans. Similar story, in fact, in a funny sort of way, but in a different genre. But what's interesting about the music for me is that it is actually unbelievably, I find it unbelievably beautiful. Now, I've, I, I, 20, 20 years ago, I kind of got into him, but I only got into him by listening to one LP, mm -hmm. you know, and I had it on CD and I just listened to that LP and I, because I loved it and it was very much like the old days. I just got this album and I just thought, this is amazing. I can't listen to any of his other stuff because it's just Where so did you good. buy the album? Where did you find it? Sorry, where? Yeah. Find I think I album? found it in a, I think I found it in a record store. It might've been in somewhere like Tower Records actually. I think I, I think I found it there, and I'm not even sure why I bought it. It's really interesting. I mean, I must have, I must have had kind of blue or something. I don't know. It's and countering I kind of... my own argument, right? Like that is someone curated the selection, and that was the difference being that that was you know a human and, and data sales driven curation uh, of those records to tower you know to the, the record store, um, which is in many ways no different than the argument that I'm making now about kids finding their Spotify playlist. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. But what's interesting is that there is so much, it, it's, it's the experience of it, you know, for mm -hmm. me, but I come to it, I've come to it much later in a funny, so in a funny sort of way, yes, the first bit was very much what you're, you're, you're talking about, but in a different, in a, in a different time. And I think that it, it wasn't that much different in my, in my day, as it were, you know, you'd pick up on something and because your peers were into it, you listen to it and you yeah. kind of, you kind of partly listen to it. And similarly today, as you say, people react to it because it's just there. But what I'm finding is because of all the extra information that you've got on, on it, that's just readily available, whether it's true or not, it doesn't matter. It forms the story. Um, and the story is of, you know, someone who created this, this, this music um, out of a, you know, a, a deep sense of, you know, an incredible knowledge of music. And then you realize, oh yeah, that does sound a bit like Debussy. And yeah. then you start to listen to it again and you chill and you actually take it in and you think, oh my God, this is amazing. And you appreciate it on a qu quite a different level. And that's the core stuff. I mean, that's the, that's the original stuff. You're not taking, you're not watching a vi video or a film or you're going back to the, it and you're, you're just letting it sink in even more so than you did when you first heard it. It was just a pretty tune. This is a pretty tune. And 
and I think maybe it's age. I don't know. I don't. I don't think it is. I think this is a kind of aesthetical experience for everyone. I think I know how I felt more or less when I was fourteen or fifteen. You get a feeling for certain music, don't you? You mm-hmm. just feel it. There's something. It, it's a combination of memory and sensory sensory stuff, and you just get it, and it just fits. But when it happens again, and you think, "Wow," you know, and you can do it with you know many different periods of that particular artist and go god there it is again or there it is slightly different and that's just one artist imagine you can do that with several you know several genres several you know experiences new new music as well because people are doing extraordinary things musically now um and i mean i play electronic music a fair amount i'm an experiment with it a certain amount as well as in i play as in i produce it i'm hardly mm-hmm. virtuosic i'm trying to teach myself the piano at the moment um but you know that kind of stuff and it's a com- music is you know obviously a completely different area as well but well it's connected but it's you could just you could just silo off music and we just talk about that forever but i think for me that experience can be quite deep set as affected by you know technologically accessible stuff content that's just reference points purely and you could say well that's just the geek but i think a lot of people get that i think a lot of people find things in odd places now and then they'll go oh maybe i'll have a listen to that or they discover a documentary or something Mm -hmm. or they're They'll hear it, and oh yeah, and particularly um, on on Netflix, because you know um, curation of music and syncs. Syncs is massive now. It was never like that. Well, it wasn't really twenty years ago. Syncs were not even really a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, now it's a massive industry in itself, and there are so many what you otherwise would be incredibly obscure artists suddenly turning up on Ozark or whatever it is. Um, and uh, I mean, unfortunately, um, you know, you get a mainstream artist like Ricky Gervais just going with the rather predictable artists. But you know, so a lot of it depends who it is. Sometimes you get you know professional uh, music um, geeks on the case to soundtrack something completely entirely through um, curated music, which is fascinating. Because then, of course, you're listening to you. What's that? And then, of course, you can reference it on Shazam or whatever and go, yep. or anything now. It's not just you add it to your Shazam tape on your, in your library. And you just go, oh, yeah, straight on your library, whatever library that is, whether it's Apple Music or, or Spotify or wherever it is. And but it's, I think um, what's interesting about amazing. that, though, is that you have context to that track then, right? You have developed yeah. a connection to it, you, whether it's that show or those characters. You've developed that, that sentiment. And, and to me, that is the opposite of what is concerning to me about the commodification of music, right? Is that the commodification is just noise and noise can be replaced. Um, whereas when using that in, in an environment and in a setting that allows people to develop connection, to develop um, presence, they um, will remember it and, and that'll become a special moment to them yeah. and, you know, piece of their identity. But, what somewhat is interesting is you have, um, you know, just to, uh, yesterday, the day before, you had Epic Games acquiring Bandcamp and this terror that's been unfolding in the oh, wow. indie music team, you know, field where the last kind of independent avenue really for um, 
distribution of your music has kind of folded um, into you know a massive conglomerate. Um, and I, I'm I'm an Epic fan. I think Epic will do some really cool things with that. I personally don't fall into that alarmist category, but um, it does simultaneously raise the question of how do modern musicians uh, have stable income and that you have tons of streaming revenue. Uh, the vast majority of it's going towards uh, older tracks, things that have nostalgia, things that um, exist. And on one argument, you could make music today is trash. You know, the, the kind of argument my, my grandparents would probably make. But um, if you go and look at the, the top tracks, very few things that are top billboard tracks stay on past a year. Um, there's a pretty significant cliff where they fall off and, um, you know, couple that with the loss of CD sales and, and actual valid uh, forms of income into a world of streaming, there there are some questions about the stability of being a creator uh, in the modern age. And, and that's where totally. things like YouTube come into play, right? Is that you have to have those presence uh, on these other platforms and you have to really get creative with what that monetization looks like. And and syncs and everything else. And I, yeah. I well, the, the only problem with syncs is there's only enough syncs to go around and that kind of stuff. And I think, um, but it raises the question of you, at what point do you get this kind of tipping point where a completely new model comes in? Because I have a suspicion, <laughs> you know, I, I have a suspicion that because there are so many creators yeah. now because of access, I mean, you know, from people like me to, I mean, almost anyone, I mean, I, I, about 10 years ago, someone was someone I, I knew was saying, yeah, all well, we all just create music, we don't listen to it. You know, all his friends, we just create, we mm -hmm. just create. And um, whether they're, you know, whether they're hijacking some of it or not, it doesn't matter, they're still creating it, which goes back again to ownership. I think, um, I think what I, this, I don't know why I think this, but probably history sort of tells me that every few years you get something that completely changes the landscape in terms of monetizing stuff. And suddenly, if they're if just people are doing whatever they do creatively, suddenly a door opens and they're in. And some, you know, they'll be they'll, you know, it was YouTube, wasn't it? YouTube suddenly create a platform, people can monetize yep. it. I think. <laughs> interesting in terms of the, how creative people were but when it comes to music which is often quite more far more complex takes quite a lot of time to kind of develop things um it'd be interesting to see how that how that works in terms of people's uh people paying for it if you see what i mean so the consumer what are they paying for is it the music part of something completely different maybe um part of this you know landscape that we you were talking about earlier the kind of ai um virtual universe that kind of thing the meta the metaverse music just part of it um because people need that soundtrack to fill their senses with exactly as you were saying in fact so so because they need it you know they've got to have it as a stimulant so people get paid for that stimulus and it and it's interesting because I, I wouldn't mind betting that that's another I mean, video games, yeah, already, you know, again, through syncing and all that. But still, we have this problem, don't we, of the large organisation taking a massive amount for someone's creativity. I think maybe, again, blockchain's the answer. I don't know. But that it could be. We You've broken the record. We are now on 65 minutes. And uh, that's about 
about 12 or 13 minutes longer than anyone else has had on, on this and you had another one so um you you double whammy i've got I've, we've got to call it a day because apart from this i'm getting hungry um it fascinating brilliant conversation, fascinating conversation. thank you so much um, i mean it's it's, it's as far as i'm concerned it's a world beater i might even put the video up on spotify you never know but um get that do the whole thing but we'll see but i'll i'll, I'll obviously i'll People will will know when they know. Um, this is going up fairly quickly. I can tell you, it was brilliant, really good. I really enjoyed time. it. Uh, keep me posted and keep us posted with what you're at. And, We've got um, so many and, things to talk about. You know, we we have holidays, we have VR, we have you know uh, hedge funds buying up music catalogs. <laughs> There's so many threads that we could still unpack. But oh, of course, um, we can keep going. Look, we'll do it again. It'd be weak for certain. Weak. Yeah, for yeah. cool. Absolutely. We'll do it again. But for the moment, I need to edit, edit this bloody stuff. So um, it's been beautiful. Have a fantastic, have you a fantastic well. rest of the day. And uh, um, yeah, thanks for Enjoy for the sunshine. Are you got sunshine there at the moment? I we actually do. Yeah, it's, we, I think last beautiful. time we talked, it was snowing uh, today. Oh, wow. A week or two ago. Today, it's like 60 degrees. So, you know, joys of the uh, winter in the desert. So Yeah, that beautiful um, ecosystem you've got. Indeed. Have, indeed. have a wonderful rest of your day. And, Thank uh, you, Jeffrey. Have a good one yourself and see you very soon.